Five scores! Rick Bod. We decided to get ourselves back in the game again with our podcast. Rick Bod. Probably the craziest story that you're ever going to hear about hockey. We're going to be coming back to you on a regular basis. You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Squid and the Ultimate Lease Fan Show. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Lease Fan, and joining me as always, my winger, Ricky Squid Vibe. Squid, how's the training coming? Uh, pretty good, actually. I uh, went out. I, it's paying off now. I went out and shot a nice, uh, smooth 76 today. So No, no, no. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about your training. Training. No, what's going on? You know, you're going to get a tryout with the Duchess over 60 hockey team if you get yourself in game shape. Oh, uh, hey, I'll be ready for that. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just yes. eat, I'll just eat wings and stuff until then, and then I'll still make the team. The contract could be sent in tonight. You just you just passed the <laughs> you just passed the story. Okay, a little smooth seventy five today. Yes, I know. Good round. Your game's getting back into form. Well, listen, our guest today enjoyed a ten year pro career after going undrafted. Signed with the Maple Leafs in nineteen eighty four had stops in Buffalo and Philadelphia, was a physical player throughout his career, very involved with the Leaf alumni, does lots of charity work, visited the troops overseas, one of the good guys of the game. Please welcome to the Squid and Ultimate Leaf fan show, Kev McGuire. Kev, how are we keeping these days? Good. How are you guys doing? Good, good, good. Well, considering everything that's going on, we're doing okay. Well, how else are you occupying your time? You still, you still have, you have a contracting business or something, don't you, that you have, you work with? Yes, uh, I'm with a company called Argusen Projects, Inc., and we're a construction design, uh, large-scale construction buildings, shopping centers, everything under the sun we do, condominiums, uh, big cottages in Muskoka, we do it all. So uh, I'm Vice President of Argusen and happy to be there. Well, we're going to take you back in time here and see what your memories like, and we'll go, we'll go back. We do have some – Squid and I have some issues sometimes. We cheat because we have notes some, to go through some of these things. But speak to your early years of playing hockey. You're from Toronto but end up playing for the Aurelia Travelways in the Tier 2 Junior A League. How did that all come about and lead you up to there? Well, I played minor hockey for Burt Robinson from the age of 6 to 10. And uh, – we didn't have a car growing up, so about 10 years old, I went and tried for the Marlies. Uh, they wanted to sign me, but the, the problem was getting around because we used to take the TTC bus to uh, back and forth to Keelsdale Arena. So at the age of 10, my hockey career finished until I was 18. And then I went out with some buddies and played North York uh, Juvenile League for Humberview. Mm -hmm. Two years there out of Downsview and Habitat Arena, and got a letter in the mail from Aurelia, which was a junior A tier two team mm -hmm. Aurelia. And uh, I didn't own any equipment. What I was doing was borrowing one of my buddy's equipment. So the weekend I was supposed to go up to Aurelia, I went to go borrow his equipment and he had lent it to somebody else. So <laughs> I showed up at training camp, no stick, no bag, no nothing. And I went to register and they said, kid, you're not taking this seriously, obviously. So why don't you just get your stuff and get out of here? And I said, come on, there's got to be some extra equipment kicking around. You can find me something. And the owner of the team, Bill Smith, just happened to be walking by at that time. And he inquired what was going on. And they said, this kid showed up with no equipment, no sticks, and he wants to try it. And he had a little conversation with me, asked me why. And I told him what was happening. And he said, well, let's... You drove all the way up here. Let's let's get you on the ice. Put some equipment on this guy and let's see what he's got. So I went out and you know you can ask anybody that's played the game. It's very hard to play in somebody else's equipment, different skates. And so I went out there and I was stumbling around the best I could and I got in a little tussle, which apparently was the tough guy of the league and you know kind of taught him a lesson. And then uh, played another played Saturday and the Sunday. In training camp with Aurelia. On the Monday, I was an apprenticeship metal worker. We were building the Granite Club in Toronto, and I was working for my dad. So I said I had to leave to go back to work. And they're like, no, we like you. We want you to stay the rest of the week. And I said, no, I, I have to go back to work. My dad will kill me, and I'll be out of a job. 
So I went back to work, told my dad what I did on the weekend, and he said, when did you start playing hockey? And I said, oh, I was just doing it for fun with some buddies, and I went for this tryout, and they want me to go back up. And he said, if you leave, don't bother coming back looking for your job if you don't make it. So later that day, unbeknownst to me, four of the scouts, uh, Jimmy Hibben from Dean Chandler, uh, he was mixed in with the Pickering Junior B Club. I can't remember all the other guys' names. Uh, Greg Zimmerman, who was a fire chief, they showed up at the job site, wanted to talk to my dad, and convinced him to uh, let me go back up to Arroyo to finish my tryout. And then from there, I got a scholarship to Bowling Green, which I was very happy about because we ended up going to the Centennial Cup in Weyburn, Saskatchewan, seven games out there. That was a battle. But over the course of the summer, I started getting offers from Jersey, Toronto, and Montreal. So I just thought it would be the best thing in the world to get a shot to play for the Leafs. So I ended up walking away from the four-year scholarship at Bowling Green and going to training camp with the Leafs. And luckily, you know, made the team. They sent me to St. Catharines for a couple of years. Well, St. Catharines and then a little bit in Newmarket. And then uh, eventually ended up getting called up and, my very first game as a Leaf, there's somebody on this screen in the morning skate who decided to take a slap shot, great. hit the goal post. Hold on, hold on. Let's go through everything. He has a different version of this story. He Kim. does have a different version. First NHL game in Detroit. Yes. Because I remember it. I remember it differently than you do, a little bit anyway. Well, you've already declared that you don't have a great memory. <laughs> yeah but that's uh that was my uh first my uh i guess your initiation to the nhl in the morning skate taking a slap shot from ricky by right in the head and spending the whole day in the hospital then about five o'clock in the evening i heard this voice where is he where is he and it was john brophy roaming the halls looking for me in the hospital in detroit and he opened up the curtain and said, I didn't call you up to sit here and have a nap all day. Let's go. We've got a game in two hours. And the doctor came in and he said, excuse me, he's got a head injury. What are you doing? He said, you sign him out or you're going to be lying in that bed. And he just kind of shoved the doctor, grabbed me, stuck me in a cab, and off to the game I went. I had, my head was out to here. I looked like the elephant man. So, so now, what happened, what happened in the game? Take us through the game. The opening face-off and everything that happened in that game. Yeah, so Brof being Brof, he started me. I had no name on the back of my jersey because back then they, they didn't get the names on too quick. They had to send them out to get them done. Nobody knew who I was, and I lined up beside Gerard Gallant, and he looked at me. He said, what the hell happened to you? What are you doing out here? And I told him, I said, I got hit in the head with a slap shot this morning on morning skate. And Brof came and dragged me out of the hospital, put me in the lineup. He goes, how do you feel? I said, I can't see. Like, like I couldn't see out of the one side of my face. And it was all swollen. All I think I had like 30 stitches. Pretty concussed. And uh, I said, look, when this puck drops, I'm going to give you a couple whacks because I, I can't see straight. I can't think. I shouldn't even be out here. So Gerard Gallant being the great guy that he is, the puck drop, I cross-checked him to the ice, whacked him two or three more times. The ref blew the whistle, gave me a two-minute penalty for cross-checking. <laughs> so on the way to the box, I looked at the ref. I said, what do you got to do to get thrown out of this game? I can't. I shouldn't be out here. So he said, call me a certain name, you know, which I can't repeat. So I called him a, a nasty name, and he kicked me out of the game. So my whole first shift, first game, probably lasted 10 seconds. <laughs> Squid, okay. what do you think I'm watching all this? Well, I mean, I knew what kind of shape he was in. I mean, you know, I, I, I remember the morning skate. And, uh, what I remember, though, is he was over in the far corner, and I'm on the right side, and I kind of was waving to him to get – back a little bit and he, he didn't move and anyway so i took a slapper and hit the post ricocheted off the post right square in the forehead cut him for i don't know 30 or 40 stitches and uh then in the game i just remember the opening uh face off and him going to the box and then getting kicked out 
and thinking, you know, like, thank God that happened because, you know, he was in no shape to play. But, I mean, that's growth. That's the way he is. And uh, he expected them to play and, and go out there and fight and everything else. And I, I'm just glad that it happened that way because I think it would have been bad for, for Kevin had he, you know, kept playing in that game. Um, I was going to ask, go back to the Aurelia period um, when the Leafs signed you. You didn't get a shot at the O, but the Leafs get now Leafs to come out to did Claire Alexander coming from Aurelia have any influence in that? Because he was actually the coach in St. Catharines at the time, I believe. And you're a good sized winger, but what what was your thought process going to your first pro camp? Going into the Leaf camp? Yeah. Uh, well, I remember I worked the whole summer on top of Maple Leaf Gardens for Dean Chandler Roofing. Remember that big white rubber roof they had yep. with the Leaf logo? Well, I put that on, and uh, I was telling the crew all through the summer, I said, yeah, I'm going to have to quit when we get about mid-August, early August. I'm going to start trading. I'm going to go try out for the Leafs. And they all thought I was a crackpot. You know, here I am working all summer <laughs> as a roofer. And then, so the time came, and uh, naturally I went down and I said, i got to quit. I'm going to go try out for the Leafs, and they actually believed me. So those guys, that crew that were building the roof, came down. Every day I was on the ice to heckle me from the Grays. <laughs> but uh, I found it really hard. I, uh, I, I didn't train hard enough that first summer. And uh, Bill Waters was my agent. And I remember him calling me saying, you know, how's the training? How much are you skating? And I said, I haven't really been skating anywhere. I've been training, but not really getting a lot of ice time. So he sent me up with, uh, he called Claire Alexander, and Claire Alexander knew a fellow named Doc Lyons, who owned the House of Chan restaurant. Mm -hmm. And he had a pro skate going at Upper Canada College. So I went out, I believe it was Tuesday nights, and skated with these ex-pros, Shaky Walton uh, was out there, uh, Brett Callagher, uh, the Dillon brothers. There was a whole bunch of guys, guys that were big corporate guys that I didn't even know of at the time. Uh, Timothy Eaton played. A whole bunch of different. They still play, by the way. Yeah, that skate is still going. I know that. Yep. <laughs> you know, with my buddy George Silva and a whole bunch of guys. So I started skating with them, and I found out pretty quickly how fast the difference was or how fast the uh, the pros were compared to the, the guys, especially in Tier 2. You know, it was a step down from the OHL. So probably skated with them a few weeks. Then I went to training camp, and our first training camp was in Belleville. Uh, yeah, you remember that, Ricky. Oh, the yeah. Biggest, the biggest ice surface in Canada. And uh, we had Dan Maloney and John Brophy as the coaches, and they just whipped us. And we skated and skated, and we had a fellow named Jim Corn back then who was in incredible shape. And they kept putting me in skating drills with Jimmy Corn, And he, he was just a horse. So, you know, it hurt a lot. I was cramping up like crazy. I remember we had this Coke fridge in the in the locker room, and I kept drinking grape juice afterwards. And I got really crampy and really sick. And it was just training camp was really hard for me. And, and uh, I was rooming with Walt Padubny, and the team had a game in Quebec, an exhibition game. And then uh, I think it was actually Squid, Billy Durlego, Johnny Anderson, a couple of guys. They said, well, when the team goes away, if you're not on the trip, the rookie's got to take the vets out and buy them dinner. <laughs> so me, Stevie, uh, Craig Muni, Cam Plant, there's a few rookies. We went out for dinner with these guys, had a couple beers. Lo and behold, they do a curfew check, and we're not in. So Craig Muni got sent home. Uh, what was the other guy? His brother was the GM of the Raptors at one point. Forget his name. But two guys got sent home, and they, they kept the rest of us, and they said, well, you're going to go to St. Catharines. You really have no shot making the team. But we like you. We like Stevie. So we went down to St. Catharines, and, you know, we learned the trade down there, which the American League was really tough back then. But I learned pretty quickly how good a shape you got to be in to be at that level. Squid? Yeah, there's no, I don't think there's any question. But that, that training camp in particular was probably one of the worst that I've ever had. 
And of course, back then, you got to remember that we went twice a day. I mean, we went for two and a half hours in the morning and then two and a half hours in the afternoon as well. And that particular camp, I remember Terry Martin got mal uh, uh, salmonella poisoning February before and missed the rest of the season because he got pretty sick and lost quite a bit of weight. And then he came, that training camp that year, it, it pretty much almost killed him. And then he ended up getting traded to Minnesota, I believe it was. But that Dan Maloney at one point took the water off the bench as well. So he couldn't even go to the bench for a drink of water. Yeah. And meanwhile, we're skating laps on this Olympic-sized rink like crazy. I mean, it was just, uh, I mean, when you think back and you think about that training camp in particular, like, and comparing it to, you know, how they train today and everything else, I mean, it was just ridiculous. It was. A lot of guys got hurt. Uh, I think yeah. they were just competing. It was Brof and Maloney didn't like each other, so they kept trying to do each other with drills. But it got to the point where there was no ice left behind the nets because we were skating so many laps so many times that it was just almost pure cement behind the ice, behind the net. Oh, it was, it was, it was the worst training camp I think I've ever been at, for sure. Yeah. Now, Kevin, do you think that not having a tier one junior background, that that hamper you somewhat and put you back a little bit behind the eight ball, like in the eyes of the guys you're competing against, maybe the coaches? Oh, definitely. For sure. Uh, I didn't have, you know, quality coaching. Uh, the thing that really benefited me is they had a thing called uh, the, Mariposa, the Mariposa School of Skating up in Arroyo where Brian Orser was training out of and a bunch of the uh, Olympian figure skaters. So Neil Carpenter and Doug Lee became friends of mine. So I stayed that summer and skated with all the figure skaters. And the following year at training camp, I was the guy lapping people because I was never taught about edges and, and turning and just all the different drills that the figure skaters did. I did that the whole summer with them and skated with them, and it really improved my game. Um, I was going to ask you, but John Brophy, you've touched on it. Uh, obviously, him running the big team, I'm guessing it wasn't lost in you the type of coach he was and the player he admired the most. Was that an additional motivation for you? Uh, yes and no. I I think I finished third in scoring in uh, Tier 2A. I played yeah. with a, a fellow named Tony Herkus who went, yeah. uh, won yeah. the Hobie Baker Award and set all kinds of scoring records and was a great pro player. I was his line mate, I guess, to protect him in junior hockey. And we had a lot of scouts coming up to uh, to watch him. So, you know, I fought a little in junior, but it was one fight and you're out of the game. Why was it for a motor St. Catharines when you got there eventually? Yeah, well, St. Catharines was a different story because that was back in the days we, they still had line brawls. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, we had, nobody wanted to. I remember at one point, I think we had 10 guys or 11 guys in St. Catharines. The Leafs were in disarray. We were in disarray. Uh, Claire Alexander got fired uh, partway through the first part of the year, and Brophy came in. And I thought I was in trouble. I thought I was going to get sent down to the eye. And, uh, you know, we had, at the time, we were running the boxes at the Skydome. So we had a pretty good business outside of the ice. So if they wanted to send me to the eye, I was just going to pack it in at that point. But I stuck it out. Brof was really, really hard on me. And Ricky knows this. He wanted me to succeed. There was something that he saw in me, and he pushed me and pushed me and abused me. If, if I didn't have somebody like that back then, I probably just would have went back to business. It's great. Yeah, that, I mean, you know, one of the good things about Brof and, and you know, and I know a lot of people didn't get along with him or don't like him, but but Brof, when he, when he liked you and wanted you to succeed, he did whatever he could to make you get there. And like Kevin said, he, like, he was probably very, very difficult on him and, and sometimes abusive. But that was only because he liked him and he wanted to see him succeed and get to the National Hockey League. Mm -hmm. uh, well, with all that in mind, you head to the 86 camp, and you're probably where I'm going with this, to fight with Wendell. Take us through that. I mean, I know it didn't turn out well for you, but was that? did you just set your mind that you were going to, to make this hockey cup, you have to make an impression, and why not start right at the top and go after him? Yeah, so 
I, uh, Daryl Sittler lived up at Aurelia and he was good friends with the owner. So the owner set up a lunch for me mm -hmm. with uh, Daryl Sittler. We went to lunch and we were discussing on how to make an input, you know, in training camp. And he was saying, you know, coming out of tier two, and they've got a lot of good players in the pro league. You've got to make an impression. You've got to get noticed first day at camp. He says, you know, you're going to have to uh, fight a guy like Wendell Clark to get noticed. So, it was. It wasn't preset. Uh, so Wendell and I, we he kind of felt it coming. We went at it, and he yeah, kind of stunned me right off the cut me for about seven stitches. And after that fight, I went in to get stitched up, and uh, Brof comes in, you know, Brof being Brof, he's like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "I'm getting my face stitched up," and he's like, oh, "Told the doctor." Stop now. He said, you get back out there. You're not missing the shift. So I went back out and challenged Wendell again. And uh, Wendell kind of said, nah, I wasn't interested. He went to skate away. And I reached over with my stick, and I kind of wrapped it around his neck, and I hauled him back and said, no, we're going to go again. And then uh, Russ Cortnell jumped on my back, and then somebody else jumped on Russ. And both benches cleared, and we had this massive brawl for the second time. But I think that made Brove happy. <laughs> I'm sure it did. To defend my honor or whatever. So that night we were heading to Edmonton. And they put me and Wendell beside each other on the plane, a five-hour plane ride to Edmonton. And we didn't really say, we didn't even know each other. It was the first time we met. Yeah. And, you know, you can see people walking up and down the aisle looking at us going, what the hell happened to you two? We're all busted up, scratched. <laughs> So we went to Edmonton and had a really rough game in Edmonton, an exhibition game. And the boys went out after that night. And we went to a bar. And same thing. Somebody got in a fight or the guys at Edmonton hated the, the visiting team. So we got into a big bar fight after that. And as the story goes, Wendell and I have become great friends ever since. Uh, mm -hmm. I think he's an awesome guy, great ambassador, just a solid human being. But uh, that was uh, – <laughs> that was quite the introduction to pro hockey. Well, I'll tell you what, if, it, if there was a brawl in the bar, then I wasn't likely there more than likely. <laughs> <laughs> now, Squid, do you not remember that fight? You were on the other, there was two sets of teams or four teams, wasn't yeah, it? I training camp? Yeah, I, the, usually there was four teams and you'd play like a round robin type thing. Uh, you'd go about a whole week of scrimmaging in the morning and then doing some drills and, and mostly skating in the afternoon, that sort of thing. Well, even after the scrimmage in the morning, you do about 45 minutes of skating. I mean, I, I got to tell you, training camp was not fun back then. I mean, it, it, it was hard. It was difficult. And it was, it was a grind. I mean, and if you, if you got through that training camp uh, unscathed and not injured, you were probably lucky because our training camps were pretty crazy. Um, you know, I'm like Kevin said, like, I mean, there, there, every, every scrimmage, there was probably at least minimum a half a dozen fights. Yeah. yeah. So what did, you hear about, what did you hear about this one? This must've made the rounds when it turned into a bench clearer. You know what? Well, as Kevin said, my memory's not that good. And I, I, I actually don't really remember anybody talking about it or anything. I, I just, uh, you know, I, I remember Kevin at, at camp and, and uh, you know, how tough he was. And, and then later on when we played together and then we played together in Buffalo and, uh, you know, and but in Buffalo, he, he scored a bunch of goals, too. I mean, he became more of a complete player over the years. And uh, but but he still had that mean streak that uh, I mean, you, you didn't want to get in his way. Let's put it that way. Well, I was going to say, so obviously that endeared you to the coaching staff. So take us through the day, Kevin. You got the call to come to the big team. Well, we touched on that earlier, the, the morning yeah. skate, but it was yeah. just before Christmas. And I think we were playing Detroit back-to-back -back Boxing Day, a day off, then another game in Toronto. So, you know, I mean, that was the best Christmas present anybody could ever ask for. <laughs> Especially, I had spent two and a half years in the minors. And the third year was not a good year. I mean, the first two years were crazy enough, but by the third year, 
Uh, I remember Val James got called up before me and I was not happy about it. So I was thinking about asking for a trade and I don't know what happened, but I ended up getting the call just before Christmas. And uh, that year, I think I played 17. I was up for 35 games, but played in 17 or 18. That only stick me into the, the tough rough and tumble games. But uh, it was tough. Like riding the buses back then, you know, and, and doing that for a living, I don't really watch any videos or old clips of, of me fighting, but uh, I wouldn't want my kid to do that. It, it's really, really tough. And, yeah. Well, I understand where you're coming from, Magsy, because, you know, I've got a son still playing in the ECHL, and he's 6'6", 245, so he doesn't lose that many fights, but he's had a few in the last week and a half, and his knuckles are all cut and, you know, like, wide open and bleeding and i mean i i, I don't wish that on anybody i i wouldn't I, I hate watching them fight to be quite honest with you i i really don't enjoy it and uh you know like you said you know i i wouldn't want i don't want my kid to do that if he doesn't have to right well on the second game on that back to back with detroit i had the one shift opening night and then the next game i'm sitting on the bench and ricky was you know, our star, 50-goal score, and I remember sitting there, and I haven't even had a shift yet, and Brove comes up behind me, and Harold Schnepps used to always go after Ricky, cross-check him, hack him, just make life miserable for him, and he came down and he said, you see what he's doing to your captain? How bad do you want to make this team? You see what he's doing to your captain? What are you going to do about it? And he throws me out on the ice, and I go skating out there with a big bandage on my head, Still no name in the back of my jersey, second game. And I challenged Harold Steps to a fight. And I did really well against Harold back then. But it was also you broke the code because Harold was an older guy in the league and I was a younger guy. So to challenge an older guy back then was kind of a no-no. So after that, I had to deal with Probert and Kosher and all the rest of the Detroit boys the rest of my career. Well, I was going to ask you, just go back to the American Hockey League and playing in St. Catharines, and you know, they, and you ended up actually in Newmarket uh, for a bit as well. Playing at that level, you touched on it, that the frustrations are coming with guys getting called up in front of you. We've had players like Craig Mooney and um, Steve Thomas on the show, and they were going through the same type of experience, having good years, but almost looking like they were being passed over. Did that frustration, as you just touched on, get to a point you did say almost you almost wanted to request a trade? Yeah. Uh, so that final year, Paul Gardner, who was the leading goal scorer in the American Hockey League, two years prior to that, he was playing in Rochester, and I was playing in St. Catharines, and we used to always have wars. And it was my job to shut Paul Gardner down as the goal scorer, and I was really rough on him. The next year, when he became our coach at Newmarket, he didn't, he didn't like me. He didn't want to use me. Uh, he wouldn't recommend calling me up So. I was either ready to get out of hockey or quit at that point because I knew as long as Paul Gardner was there, I was never going to get a shot. But eventually, I guess Paul changed his mind or somebody in Toronto said, we're calling him up no matter what. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a little different today. You know, there's the agents are more involved. There's more visibility. Back then, when we were in St. Catharines, used to be a saying that it's, 60 miles down, but it's 600 miles back up. Yes. <laughs> I think Kevin emphasized that to Steve Thomas one night after one period of playing in the National Hockey League. Yeah. Well, Steve yeah, and I, I lived together in St. Catharines. We were, we were roommates. We rented a townhouse. And back then, they, you know, they do the hazing you know, and the initiation. So we both got our heads shaved down in St. Catharines. And, you know, you're always black eye or missing tooth something the neighbors didn't know what the hell we were just these two guys shaved heads and always full of scars but he's still a good friend of mine great guy I see him all the time but i used to look after anybody who went after stevie stevie was our star in st catherine's you know so i got in a lot of fights trying to protect stevie a lot of fights trying to protect ricky up top but that was the job back then you had no choice yeah so Kevin, when you were in the minors, like, okay, two, you, you know, you're looking at two and a half years. Um, how much did that help your hockey, the hockey part of it? Uh, or did it? I mean, 
you know, doing different things in practice, trying to, you know, improve on certain areas of, of the game and so on. Did, did that really help you uh, going forward? Well, it did because I didn't have, you know, a, a career or any hockey experience all through my teens. So I just had Humberview juvenile hockey where you had to pay $1.25 to get in your own game. <laughs> and then I jumped up to the tier two, which I thought was a huge step. And that worked out well. I ended up making pro team and the Leafs, my favorite team. But those two years of the minors, just to learn the trade, just to, to have, you know, experience, good coaches. Uh, I never saw videos. You know, we would watch the other team's power play. Just the whole game itself to learn the game. You, I, I think back then more guys played in the minors, but they needed it. It was a good training ground. Yeah. So you end up playing with the Leafs. You get into you get you're up for 35 games. You played 17, but the off season you're claimed by Buffalo. How was your confidence level at that point, and how did that all kind of unfold for you? And did they what was the role they were looking for from you, or did you know? Well, I think Buffalo finished last the year before, so they had the first pick in the uh, waiver draft. So I was never in a draft, but the only draft I was in, I went first overall. <laughs> <laughs> that made me happy. But uh, it, it broke my heart in the beginning because uh, I'll never forget, we were lining up to do the team pitcher at training camp, and we're all on the benches, and they're going to do the team pitcher, and I'm so proud to be in the Leaf uh, team pitcher. And uh, what's his name? Gord Stellick comes out, and he comes up. We're all lined up for the team pitcher, and he gives me the win. Come here, i got to talk to you. You've just been traded to Buffalo. You can't be in the team pitcher. And that, that really hurt. Oh, that, that really hurt. You know, just to have to come out of that team pitcher lineup, go by everybody, and back into the dressing room was, was demoralizing. But when I got to Buffalo, I loved Buffalo. It was probably the best three years of my entire hockey career. I loved the town. I loved the team. You know, I just I, – we had so much fun, and we had a really, really good team. You know, I had Mike Foligno and Lindy Ruff were our captains. Uh, there's Napesy, Phil Housley. We had so many great guys in that team, and we were a really close, well-knit team. So that was a lot of fun, Buffalo. Yeah. Yeah, I got to say, Buffalo was probably one of my favorite places to play. I mean, the, the people there were, were fabulous, too, the fans. Um, the community was excellent. It was a great place to live. Um, you know, and I love playing in the odd because, you know, if you got five, eight feet over the blue line, it was a scoring chance there. And, and so, so that was, that was a lot of fun for me, but, uh, just, just, uh, the way of life in Buffalo was, was really, really good for, for family too, for, for my kids and going to school and that sort of thing. It, it was wonderful. So now Kev, um, uh, this is usually a question that Squid asked, but I'll, I'll step on his uh, feet here and take this one. Was there a moment or a game or an incident with a teammate or something along those lines that put you at ease that you finally made it? Uh, Probably uh, Clark. Yeah, when, I, when, I, when, he, when I hit a hit him with a slap shot in the head. <laughs> <laughs> that would certainly do it. I think he was referring to my time in Buffalo. But, uh, yeah, the slap shot in the head woke me up. I hadn't seen that much blood come out of somebody since Clint Malarchuk. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, but uh, no, there was Buffalo had a real veteran team, and uh, like I said, Mike Felino, Lindy Ruff, uh, Mike Ramsey, Mike Ramsey. Oh, I love Rammer. Such a uh, Larry Playfair. Larry played well. Larry came the, the next year. He wasn't there the first year. Clark Gillies was there. Became very yeah. close with Clark Gillies drive the practice together, uh, you know, it, Parker, uh, Alexander McGillney came along. Like, there wasn't anybody that really just didn't like anybody on the Sabres. We'd, we'd go to lunch together as a team after almost every practice. We did everything together, snowmobiling, golfing. It was a really close team. I really Bills games. It. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I just – and I meant for you to ease as a player that you finally – you know, I've battled my way. I've got the respect of the team. i got the respect of the players. The league knows who I am. You know, I can breathe a little bit here that I do have a job. 
Never really felt that comfortable, to tell you the truth. When you're mm -hmm. a third, fourth-line player, you're always sort of self-doubting yourself. Mm -hmm. It's it's hard. Fair enough. So uh, probably the second year in Buffalo, I felt at ease. Uh, when I became the player rep, I started going to player-owner meetings, became more involved, and felt like I belonged in the league. So okay. that's, that's probably one full circle for me. So well, I, I, would have, I would have to say, Mike, like Kevin's trying to explain, is back then you were a, a third or fourth line guy in the National Hockey League. I mean, well, most all of those guys were on two-way contracts. Mm -hmm. And you could be sent to the minors in a heartbeat. And yeah. back then you had recallable waivers, so it wasn't that difficult to get a guy to the minors. And uh, so I, I think that's probably – one of the toughest jobs that uh, the guys had to go had to do back then was be a third or fourth liner because every day you had to prove yourself or you were going to the minors. No, that's and, a that's a great point because I don't think I got my first one way contract until my second year in Buffalo. Yeah, and yeah, that and that really puts you at ease because, as Ricky said, when you're on a two way contract back then, there was no restrictions. They could haul you up and down as many times as they want. Yeah. So. yeah. so, you know, you're going along and things are going pretty well. And all of a sudden, the Philly situation happens in 1990 or uh, before that, actually, before you, you come back to Philly, you go to Philly. Take us through all of that and what happened there. Right. So I had met with Jerry Meehan, who was the GM, a couple of weeks before that. And uh, there were some rumors. And he said, don't worry, Kev, your job is absolutely secure here. We love you. We love you. So two weeks later, I got traded for Jay Wells, and uh, I went to Philly. Bill Barber met me at the airport, uh, said, don't bother unpacking. You're going to get traded. It was the day before the trade deadline. You're going to mm -hmm. get traded tomorrow at the, the trade deadline uh, for Luke Richardson. Philly wanted Luke Richardson. So there was a Philly practice the next morning. I got a call early morning and said, oh, sorry, Kev, the trade didn't go through. So you're going to be here with us. <laughs> really. Which I wasn't too thrilled about because our Skydome business was taken off at the time. I needed to be in Toronto. I just had my first child. Mm -hmm. So I'm in Philly. I, uh, I get the, a fax saying my wife's leaving me. So called the front desk calls and says, there's a fax here for you. You can come down and get it. And I'm sure... Everybody in the hotel lobby had read it by then. So I went to Bobby Clark. I played 10 games there. I blew my knee out, missed the last five or six. The only saving grace there was uh, Kenny Riggett, who was like my, one of my best buddies, was the goalie in Philly and moved in with him. And we kind of hung out for a couple months. But at the end of the year, I went to uh, Bobby Clark and said, I wanted to get traded back to Toronto. I can't stay in Philly. I'd, I don't want to get divorced. And he said, well, okay. He said something really funny <laughs> about getting divorced. And he said, let her go or something. I said, no, I got to go back. And he said, well, in all my years of hockey, I've never had anybody ask to get traded to Toronto. So he goes, leave it with me. We'll see what we could do. So in the draft that summer, Philly's first pick, they uh, traded me back to Toronto and kept their word, which I thought was a very classy move on Philly's part. Script. Yeah, no, I, I mean, again, you know, for, for, there, there were some teams that would do that and, and they were good to you back then, but it's like I said, for the most part of uh, 21 teams, I mean, the majority of them were run just like, you know, in the Harold Ballard days. And, you know, I mean, the owners didn't give a shit. GMs didn't give a shit. And, you know, there's a guy like Bobby Clark who, you know, was, was true to his word. And he said, he's, I'll see what I can do. And he, he made it happen. And, you know, from what I understand, uh, Bobby Clark was like that. He, you know, he wanted everything to be good in the organization. So if you had a request, he was going to do the best that he could to, to honor that. But yeah. there, weren't, there weren't that many general managers or owners in the NHL back then that would have done that. Trust me. So talk about the time back in Toronto now for this. Now you're coming back to Toronto. So you have a little bit more of an idea and maybe touch on this. 
Talk about playing for the Toronto Maple Leafs and wearing that sweater. I mean, you grew up in the Toronto area. You knew how revered this team is held. What Putting that jersey over here, how did life change for you in that regard? Well, I was thrilled to be back in Toronto. Like you said, uh, my dad was a, a huge Leaf fan, so it made him so proud. I was proud. Uh, I was raising a family here in Toronto now. Life seemed to be great, but Unfortunately, at that point, where there was a little dis a lot of disarray when Harold passed away and the team going to charity, then uh, Don Giffen got the team, and I was actually a sheet metal apprentice for Don Giffen at Giffen Sheet Metal. So I was thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to be GM of this team one day. <laughs> <laughs> well, you probably would have done better than all the other guys. <laughs> yeah. Don Giffen's running the team. I'm playing for the team. My dad worked for Giffen's. My brother worked for Giffen's. I worked for Giffen's. And unfortunately, Don passed away, I think, six months or eight months later. So uh, Steve Stavros took over. But the team was in real ownership disarray back then. Right. I loved playing in Toronto. I mean, absolutely loved it. So, and how did, and then you end up in St. John's. He had a couple of years there. So, and walk us through all that. Then I guess maybe then it all of a sudden, the end was near. Right. So, that was the second year back, I believe. Like I said, the memory might be going. On. I uh, ended up uh, smashing my back and uh, cracked a couple of vertebrae and missed, I don't know, four or five months. And at the end of that year, we as uh, the NHLPA, we went on strike. And Cliff Fletcher was the GM. And I had been off for months and months and months with this back injury. And he said, uh, you know, what are we going to do? The rehab is going to be canceled. Because we used to get rehab in the dressing room. We didn't go to third parties. Mm -hmm. So there was once the strike came, there was no nothing to do. So I said, well, how about if I go to St. John's and try to get it in shape in St. John's? And he says, well, you don't have to. You're on a one-way contract. And I said, well, I'll give it a shot. So I went down to St. John's, and we took a run at the Calder Cup, lost at the seventh game to Adirondack, but got myself, I thought, in really good shape. Things were back on track. Oh, sorry. I skipped a point. Reverse back to the training camp before that. Mm-hmm. I ended up going to St. John's for a brief stint there because I missed training camp. My uh, eldest daughter was in the hospital with really bad croupy, and she was in the tent. So I missed all the training camp, and I ended up going to St. John's probably early November, and I was back by Christmas. Mm -hmm. And then I played the rest of the year with the Leafs. And I believe it was the second year. No, it was the – I'm trying to remember all this. It's hard. So I got called back up. We played the rest of the year in Toronto. I got hurt and then went to St. John's again for the playoff run and went to the seventh game. So I, I did two stints at St. John's, one in the beginning of the year, then got called back up. And then when we went on strike and I was coming out of the back injury, went and did the playoffs and went at the end of the year. But that was interesting because they had so much young talent there. Felix Potvin, Manderville. I can't even remember the guys you played with right now, but what a, what a young, good team they had there. And we had a few characters, too. Kevin McClellan used to be with the, the Oilers. He was a character, a lot of fun in the dressing room. Curtis Hunt, uh, Joel Quenville. You know, it, it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed St. John's. Well, well, funny, enough, funny enough, I do remember that year, Kevin, because yeah. I wasn't playing in Buffalo. I asked for a trade. John Muckler, he wouldn't trade me, said he put me on waivers. And I said, yeah, recallable waivers. And said, well, it's the same thing. And I said, it's not, John, and you know it's not. So anyway, I said, I went to Jerry Meehan, who was still the general manager. And I said, listen, if, I don't, if you can't trade me by the deadline, send me to Rochester. I said, because, you know, Ottawa and Tampa were coming in the next year. And I said, I need to play. Right. So anyway, I go to Rochester. And, of course, we played Ann Rondack in the semifinals, and it was a best of three, and we lost two games to one. And then I remember you guys had home ice against that Rondack. They won all four games in your building, and you won all three in their building. That's exactly so I right. That, I remember that series very well. Yeah. yeah and Barry Melrose was the coach of Adirondack. Yeah, they had Primo, 
a bunch of guys. They had a good farm system too. Uh, Barry Melrose, he was he was hot headed behind the bench. Yeah. Uh, oh, what's what's the guy? We we had Crawford. Uh, Mark, yeah. Mark Crawford, he was our coach in St. John's. And he, those guys wanted to kill each other every game. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you, uh, Kevin, uh, give the, give, highlight maybe some of the more bizarre things you saw as a hockey player playing in the minors that would just make, make you shake your head saying this is pro hockey. Uh, we've had guys tell us stories about short benches, so they've phoned beer league players to fill the roster, looked for any kind of goalie to step in, be, you know, from trainers to equipment managers to play goal, all kinds of crazy stories like that. Anything that you experienced over your years? Wow, uh, there was quite a few. <laughs> most of them, most of them revolve around John Brophy stories. I remember we went to New Haven one night, and it was a snowstorm. It took us about nine and a half, ten hours to get there in the snowstorm from St. Catharines. And I think we were supposed to check in by eleven o'clock at night or whatever. And we checked in about three o'clock in the morning. And the guy behind the counter told Brophy that they'd given all the rooms away. Oh yeah. <laughs> So bro said, excuse me, pardon? I can't hear you too well. The guy came over and he had a leather tie on and bro grabbed his leather tie and smashed his head off the counter. Not the guy clean out, right? Somebody in the hotel saw it. They phoned the police. Brophy got arrested. We had to sleep on the bus. Uh, we, then we had to give all the meal money for the, the whole trip, like four or five day road trip. We had to, Pull all our money together to bail Brophy out of jail. <laughs> you can ask anybody that played in those days. And we ate pizza for the whole week. We had no money. The media never found out about it. It never leaked out. But that, you know, there were some wild, crazy stuff like that. And just player shenanigans. We we had some real guys that are pranksters. Well, like, give us a couple of examples. We always love the pranksters on this show. Oh, God. Well, probably the biggest prankster I ever played with was Lindy Ruff. He, he, was, he was just endless. You know, he would. we had a rookie on the team. They'd come in with a new dress shirt or something. While they weren't looking, he'd go in the change room and tie uh, the new shirt in the, the tightest knot in the arm you ever seen in your life. Or if you're a little bit cocky, you'd get a nail your uh, shoes to the floor. Just put a nail right through your shoes, right into the floor, so you'd have to walk out in the winter with no shoes on. There's all, all kinds. I wish I could think of a couple right now. I'll probably think of them as soon as we get off air. That's always the way. Yeah, that's always the way. But well, um, while you're thinking of that, how about, how about the, we've got a few minutes left here. How about getting into the refereeing? How did that all start? Well, that's, that's after my playing days. I was sitting in Maple Leaf Gardens. I was sitting next to my ex-wife having a couple beers and a couple slices of pizza. And near the end of the second period, Don Kolharski goes down, he gets injured. So they cut the second period short. And the crowd's waiting, about half an hour goes by, 45 minutes go by. We're almost an hour delayed now for the third period to start. So, you know, I'm just out of the league one year. I said, I gotta go down and see what's going on. This, something's just not right. So I go down the referee's room and Jim Gregory and uh, Brian Lewis are there. I said, what's going on? What, what? And they're saying, well, Koharski's hurt, and we're waiting for a guy to drive in from St. Catharines to uh, be the third official. And I kind of rolled my eyes, and Brian Lewis said, what, you think you could do this? And I kind of went, anybody can be a ref. It's not that hard. <laughs> <laughs> and then they're like, well, have you ever had the experience officiating? And I said, no. And they said, okay, we'll put you in because we got to get this game going. It was the second last game, I believe, against Chicago. And I came out to do the third period. Swede Knox went in as a referee. They put me in as a linesman. So I, I didn't know the signals. I didn't know the rules. I didn't know. I knew generally what the linesman did. But it was a rough third period, so I was great at breaking up fights and putting guys off saying, who are you kidding? You're in. You know. So I controlled the fights a lot. So after the game, I go in and – Gregory and Brian Lewis are there. They're like, well, we can't thank you enough, Kevin. That was great. That was awesome. You know, how'd you like it? And I said, it was great. I never usually got that much ice time in the third period before. <laughs> <laughs> so from there, they said, do you want to continue? And I said, sure, I'll give it a shot. They sent me to Hamilton to work in the American League as a linesman. Did that for a couple of years, then converted to a referee in the American League. 
and then went on to do that, I think, for about seven, eight years. Now, did you reach out to Paul Stewart to ask him, get some advice for him how to make the transition, and how did the transition go from being a player to the ref? How hard was that? It was a little easier on me because the relationship I had with the coaches were either ex-teammates or guys that are new, and I think I got a little more respect from the players by being an ex-player than a lot of officials did, it, especially in the minors. But, uh, you know, even Ricky, when he was coaching in the East Coast League, I got to tell us, you were in Charlotte, weren't you? South Charleston, Carolina. Charleston. 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 Yeah. We did a game there one night, and this is how bad it was years ago. You guys lost the game, and the linesmen used to get paid cash, and we'd get paid through the NHL if you were a trainee by check. Somebody opened the door, and they threw in a whole bunch of $1 bills, program money. That's how they were going to pay the linesmen. <laughs> So I picked up all these $1 bills, marched down to the coach's room, which was Ricky's room, and it was you and Marcel Dion were in there. Yeah. And I kind of lost it on you guys. I said, you guys think you're ever going to get a call? You're ever going to get a break if that's how you treat the officials? So next day, and it was you or Marcel. One of you has got us a new hotel room and a better hotel. We came to the dress room for the next game because they had back-to-backs. There were sandwiches, cookies, pop, beer on the table, all like a professional NHL arena. So, you know, that's just one of those stories from officiating back in the day. Script? Well, the one thing uh, that I recall is that, like, I know when I was there and probably after Marcel had left, and one of the things I, I always did was I, I made sure the officials were comfortable. And whether we win or we lost, I always brought six beer into the room. And, you know, I might have a comment to say or something, but I'd say, here, guys, and, you know, uh, you know, whether we won or whether we lost, it didn't matter. It was like, you know what? I kind of, I kind of finally came to the realization after about a year and a half of coaching in that league that, you know, hey, these guys are starting at the bottom, just like these players are, just like I am. And they're trying to make a living doing this. So, you know what? I'm going to make it easier for them. And I, I'm going to treat them a little bit better than they probably get treated in most other cities. And and I tried my best to do that. So, uh, you know, like Kevin said, I put food in there before the game, before the game for them. And after the game, I'd always bring beer in for them. Like I said, win or lose. You know, there was the odd time I might have said, well, that, was, that, that wasn't a very good game for you guys, but – Anyway, here's your beer. Have a good night. <laughs> you know, something like that. Uh, but uh, but no, it was a lot of fun. It was, it was good. I, and I got to know them. That was the best part was I got to know all these guys, uh, Terry Koharski and all these guys that were refereeing in that league. And, and, you know, later on in the American League and so on, you know, I got to cross paths with them again. And so we, we had pretty good relationships. Yeah. Now, Kev, did you guys, did you, now after doing this for a while, did you have a different perspective towards referees in general after being one yourself? Uh, I didn't realize how much pressure the referees felt during the game, especially in the old one referee system. There was, there was a lot of pressure to perform well, and I wouldn't say manage the game. It was just trying to, you know, there, there was so many things going on as a player you don't realize that the officials are watching 10 guys at once mm-hmm. you're going to see everything in front of you behind you beside you uh, deal with the coaches deal with the tv deal with the the guys in the penalty box running the clock there was so much to it that i didn't realize went on as an official i gained a lot of respect for them after i did that it's a, it's a very difficult pressure cooker job but, uh, it was also it was also fun for me I have to say I enjoyed it. I felt like, especially when you get back to the NHL as an official, you you know you have that sense of pride that you've made it to the top of your profession again. Now, what was the some of the chirps from players? Some players must have given you a hard time. What were some of the better chirps you heard from the benches or from some of the players coming at you? I don't know if I can say them. <laughs> oh, you can. We were oh, you can. no yeah, filter can. here in this show. Yeah, I, I can't remember who said it, but there was one I'll never forget. Somebody yelled at me and he said, hey, ref, get off your knees. You're blowing a good game. (laughs) (laughs) I've never heard that one before. I I like that one. I actually stopped 
turned around and said, that was funny. <laughs> uh, I had never heard that one before, but you get comments like that. Uh, you know, the, the superstars, I didn't realize how hard it was to deal with the superstars. Uh, they commanded so much respect from the officials. Because when we played, it was only the captain and the assistants that could talk to the officials. As time went on and I started getting officiating, it started getting really verbally abusive towards the officials. Yeah. So they cracked, you know, Gary Bettman cracked down on that. Him and uh, the guys in the Toronto office, Montreal office. Uh, Berkey was the director of player operations back then. It got really, really bad. I, I think it was the years when uh, Chris Draper got cross-checked from behind by Lemieux. Mm -hmm. right, right in those years, like the coaches started going crazy on the bench, throwing things on the ice, coming after the officials. It, it really got messy. Yeah. But they've cleaned it up now. Uh, I think the officials, you look at them now, you don't see guys verbally abusing the officials. You don't see all the shenanigans that used to go on. I mean, because they're really decent guys, the officials, and they, it's a hard life. You know, the NHL stands for no home life because there's really no home games. You're always on the road. Yeah. Well, just I mean, go back to your, your playing days, but I want to just, we, we just got a couple of minutes left here. Um, was there a player or a player that you admired by the way he carried himself, not only on the ice, but off the ice, dealing with the ups and downs and being a professional hockey player and just how he just related to life in general? Uh, other than me. Yeah, other than Squid. Other than Squid, well, Squid was very, he was very well respected because he was a legitimate superstar. But uh, there was a lot of guys, uh, like I said earlier, Clark Gillies, I thought was a, a yep. true gentleman. Uh, Lindy Ruff, Mike Foligno, Mike Ramsey, uh, incredible guys. There's so many guys, you hate to think you're leaving a couple guys out. But, uh, when I got into the Players Association and we were going through the Allen Eagleson days, uh, there were some guys uh, like Doug Wilson, like an absolute gem, uh, Mike Liu, an absolute gem, really decent, smart, caring guys, uh, Brian Trache, you know, just real leaders. Fantastic. Well, listen, uh, Squid, final thoughts before we let uh, Kev go? Well, well I just want to get one thing in before you let me go. Oh, so please do. Uh, we had a, a friend of the family pass away mm -hmm. uh, from COVID. So I just wanted to mention his name and wish his family uh, best Please wishes do. and our regrets. So he was the biggest Leaf fan you'll ever imagine. He had a basement like yours. He had all the memorabilia. He walked around. His name was Bruno Sposato. He was 54 years old, born in Toronto, lived in Richmond Hill, and he wore nothing but Toronto Maple Leaf gear everywhere he went. So he was good friends of the family, uh, especially Perry Lansing, my cousin. So he'll be dearly missed and may God rest his soul. Here, here, here. Yeah, All the absolutely. best to Bruno and his family, Bruno's family from us. Thank yeah. you. Squid? No, I, well, now we're getting, uh, I was gonna, I'll just quickly try and tell this story. And I learned really quickly when I got into coaching that, you know, yelling at the referees and waving your hands wasn't doing any good. So Terry Koharski's doing the game. He calls three really bad calls against us in, in a row. So I call him all. I go like this. So Terry comes over, and I can see him. He goes like this as he's skating over. So, you know, I, I put my hands in my pocket, and I said, hey, Terry. I said, uh, look at that blonde over there beside the penalty box. And he goes to turn around. I said, don't turn around. I said, you can't do that. I said, you know, but uh, look at her, you know, you, you, you got to take a, a look at her. And I go, and then, so he, he's getting ready to go. And I said, oh, by the way, those are three shitty calls. <laughs> so he goes to the penalty box, like he's telling the timekeeper something. And he looks over and he looks at the, the lady who's sitting there. And then he looks over at me and he goes, like this, wow. <laughs> so then we got three calls in a row right after that. <laughs> I thought that was the greatest thing that ever happened to me as a coach when uh, when, when that happened. Well, and on that note, we do have to say goodbye. Kevin, we want to thank you so much for your time this afternoon, and thanks for joining us, and uh, best of luck going forward, and uh, hopefully we get a Leaf win tonight. Yeah, I hope so. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thanks, thanks. See you guys. Thanks,